morning, church family. Great to see all those who made it and uh, remembered to set your clocks and didn't make plans for going away for March break. Right? Those are the ones that are left here today. Uh, so congratulations for that. And if you are away on March break and watching online, we welcome you as well. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. That's the passage we're looking at today. Uh, this is our next sermon in our series on when you pray, where Jesus instructs his disciples on how to pray. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is perhaps one of the best known passages in all of Scripture. People recognize this passage even if they've never opened a Bible. Perhaps people have never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet they know this passage, right? It goes like this, our Father, right? Everyone knows that one. But J.C. Ryle, one of my all-time favorite long-dead pastors, um, he said this. He said, Happy would it be for the world if this prayer was as well known in the spirit as it is in the letter. Do you know what Ryle was saying? Ryle was saying something that we all intuitively know to be true. That it's possible for us to know something by rote, to know something by letter, but to never actually know it by spirit in our own hearts. Let's say that a different way. It would be a great tragedy today, friends, if we all walked away from this Sunday service, this Sunday sermon, and we had a better understanding of the technicalities of this prayer, but it never touched you. It never changed you. If you knew it by letter, but not by spirit, see, that would be a great tragedy. It's possible. It's possible to know the Lord's Prayer and yet have an unchanged heart. You have probably seen this if you've been in church or maybe raised in Christian schools. It's even possible to use this prayer and fall into the traps that Jesus sets out in the prior couple of verses. It's possible to pray this prayer and do so, as Jesus said, like the hypocrites do. It's possible to say this prayer and to say it in such a way that it's just vain repetition, just piling up a whole bunch of words. It's possible to know it by letter and not by spirit. But what we're inviting over the course of this series is actually a different view on prayer. What we're inviting from Matthew chapter 6 is for every single one of us to look closely at how we pray and to see our prayers as a window, if you will, or as a lens. A lens or a window through which we see how we think about God. The way that you pray to God will show you what you believe God is truly like functionally. And then once we see those truths that we hold about God, we can then hold them up against Scripture and see if they are in fact true. Or if they're false narratives that we've piled on and accumulated over experience and time. If they're false narratives, then we need to displace them and replace them with the truth of God revealed to us in Jesus and in Scripture. In these 
passages that we looked at the last two Sundays, we've seen that our prayers can be hampered. If we think that God is primarily concerned with what others think about us. Do you remember that? Jesus warned his disciples and he said, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. They like to make a big public showing of it because they want other people to see how wonderful and spiritual they are. He said, don't pray like that. So today, if you look at your prayer life and you are living out of this functional belief, you think that God is somehow most impressed when other people are impressed by your spirituality. That's the RD translation of Jesus saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. The second thing that might be hampering your prayers is if you think that God is somehow cajoled or manipulated by the clever words that you use, well, that's going to hamper your prayers. That's what Jesus said. Think about it. If you believe, Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles do, right? Don't heap up a bunch of words. This idea of heaping up a whole bunch of words is actually comes from a place where you have a wrong idea of the nature and character of God. If you believe that God is this heavenly entity who needs to be cajoled and sort of boxed and tricked into doing your will by you choosing the right words. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. They just heap up empty words. Some of us fall into this trap very readily. We have this um, almost magical incantation idea of prayer. Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles. They just heap up a bunch of words. We pray as though God is sitting in heaven listening to our prayers and God's like, okay, yeah, and he's following along in our prayers and yeah, and he's nodding his head and he's like, yeah, okay, RD, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, whoa, whoa, not going to answer your prayer. You said the wrong word. Well, you chuckle, but sometimes that's what we bring to prayer. And so as we come to our passage this morning where Jesus is about to tell his disciples how to pray, he's already told them, Don't pray like the hypocrites. They just want to be seen. They think God is impressed with other people being impressed with you. And he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. They just heap up a bunch of words, thinking that they can box me into what they want. Don't pray like either of those. Instead, Jesus says, pray like this. And how does he begin that? Look at the Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father. A couple of things to note as we begin moving through this passage that's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. The first one is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Now, have you ever really thought about the fact that followers of Jesus are called disciples? That's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because the word disciple has the same semantic root as the word in English that we use for discipline. If you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's going to require of you that you exercise discipline 
in your spiritual life, including in prayer. If you want to have a vibrant relationship in prayer with God as your Heavenly Father, you have to approach it as a disciple. You must marshal your spirit and direct it in the direction you want it to go. Look, this is true not only of your life spiritually and in prayer, but you know that it's also true in every area of your life. Very few things happen that are good in a sustained way by accident or just left to their own chances. You must exercise discipline and point your life towards something better. It doesn't matter if it's losing weight, saving money, you know, going to the gym. I'll tell you a funny story. So we all know that this is true, that we need to exercise discipline. So why do we not do it in different areas of our life? Think about it. Why do you not exercise discipline? Because it's hard. Because you have this war going on within you, every single one of us inside our person. Paul actually describes that spiritual battle of every person as the flesh battling against the spirit. But in a far less significant way, it happens to me at 5 o'clock every morning when I'm sitting on the rowing machine. Uh, the other week, I was you know, going s- s- seven days a week. I was two and a half weeks in, and I do three sets of 10 minutes. I was just finishing up my second set, and that's when the bargaining started. I knew I had one more set to do, but I started telling myself as the time was winding down and I'm sweating, this is miserable, I hate doing this. You know, you could just cut it off after two sets today. After all, you've worked so hard on rowing for the last two weeks. You deserve it. No one will ever know. That's what was happening. And as I'm pulling on that stupid handle, I thought to myself, no. I worked for the last two weeks to bring that voice to the surface so that I can overcome it by discipline. And I'm not telling you that because I'm any great guy. I fail all the time. I just want you to see an example of how this works with something as simple and mundane as rowing because it's true in our spiritual life as well. You may be a Christian man or woman. But until you begin to exercise discipline in your prayer life, your prayer life will never reap the rewards of deep abiding communion with your Heavenly Father. Jesus calls his followers disciples. And he instructs them to pray in this way. Pray then like this, Our Father, Second thing I want to pull out of this beginning is that Jesus instructs these disciples to pray to God as Father. And we could do an entire sermon series just on this one point. I I want to state this as starkly as I possibly can. Prayer is only possible if you know God as Father. Another way of saying that. To the extent that you know the character of God, your prayers will be effectual in changing you. 
We've already seen Jesus tell his disciples how not to pray. And this week he's telling them how to pray. Come to God as Father. There's no point in going any further in the Lord's Prayer until we get this part right. And so this morning, I want to ask you a personal question. Do you know God as Father? Listen, if you, if you don't know God as Father, you say, I, just, I don't connect with God in that way. You may be doing a lot of things, but you're not praying. You may be meditating. You may be centering yourself. You may be having a spiritual experience. You may even be impressing people that are watching like the hypocrites. You may have the best of intentions, but until you know God as Father, you're not praying. And so before we get into these instructions in the Lord's Prayer, we have to camp out here for a moment. Do you personally know God as Father? Well, Scripture is clear. The only way to know God as your Heavenly Father is to be born again. When the Holy Spirit of God convicts you of your sin, shows you your need for a Savior, and then shows you the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and you are so repulsed by your sin, and you are so drawn to him for your salvation, that you declare with your mouth, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead for me. That you are truly born of the Spirit. You know, it's a great tragedy how many people go to church every Sunday morning, serve in so many different ways, but have never been born of the Spirit. I can't plead with you enough this morning. Don't leave here without being born again. It changes everything. In that simple miracle where God grants you the faith to believe, your entire life will be changed. You will come to know God as Father. You know, that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 4. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, you and me, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Perhaps you've come here this morning and you have many different ideas or notions about God. 
And those notions that you hold about God are actually keeping you away from him in prayer because you are afraid of him. You're scared of him. Or maybe those notions that you hold of God are not true and not biblical, and so they are shaping and twisting your prayers into something that are odd or weird. Start here. Ask that God would grant you that spirit so that your very being, your very heart, cries out to God as Abba, Daddy, Father. You are deeply convinced that you are a son you are an heir of God. That's where prayer starts. See, prayer begins with knowing God as Father. And it's only through his work of adopting you as sons that you become his heirs. And then you no longer come to him groveling. You no longer come to him pleading. You come to him with boldness, just like you would to a loving father. It's that awareness of God's fatherly disposition that shapes our prayers. Verse 8, just a a verse or two ago, um, Jesus said, when you come to God in prayer, you don't need to heap up words because your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask him. See, you come to God, born again, born of the Spirit, adopted into his family, and you come to him as a father who already knows what you need before you even ask. Our father. Later in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to talk and expand more on this, and he's going to say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Verse 9, Matthew 7. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven, give you the things that you ask him. When Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray, he starts there. Come to God as Father, confident that he knows and wants what is best for you. Verse 9, when you pray, Pray in this way, our Father. He says, our Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, I think that we sometimes have wrong ideas about God in heaven. You know, these ideas are perpetuated through Hollywood and some really bad children's Bibles. They have God pictured as this guy with like a long white beard and flowing white robes and he's somehow sitting in clouds and he's surrounded by angels who are playing harps and eating Philadelphia cream cheese or something silly, right? We think, oh, our Father in heaven, somewhere up there, I don't know, in the ether. That's not what Jesus means. When Jesus instructs his disciples in prayer and he says, pray to God as your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying your Father 
is not bound by time and space. He is transcendent. That's what it means. It's not about proximity per se, like he's not here on earth, he's like somehow up above the planets in heaven, whatever in the world that means, right? These are the wrong ideas. He's saying, no, no, your father is in heaven. He's transcendent. He holds all authority. He is perfect. He is complete. That's the father that you pray to. A father who is in heaven, he is more than willing because he's a father. He's more than able because he is ruling from on high. He is your father in heaven. Oh, friend, don't miss this point when you pray. If you're a Christian man or woman, there is nothing so small that God doesn't care. He's your father. And there's nothing so big that he's not able. He's your father in heaven. Jesus goes on. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What do you think of when you think about hallowing the name of your Father God? Well, perhaps one of the first places that we go to is, you know, maybe when you're, swear, when you're, when you're praying, you should rule out all swear words. It's a good place to start. You know, there are different categories of swear words that we work into our English language. It's fascinating to me that most English swear words are built around bodily functions. Isn't that interesting? You go to other languages, it's not always the case. But there are different categories of swear words. There are lewd words, you know, things you don't say in polite company. There are coarse things that just are not nice, and so you keep them to yourself. But then there are also sacred words. And you know, those are the ones that offend me the most. I don't think many people would accuse me of being prudish, but when I'm out on the golf course and someone hits a slice and they're like, God damn it, or Jesus Christ, I literally just like, man, I'd rather they drop an F-bomb. Because those are the ones that really offend my conscience. It's not hallowing the name of God. It's taking something that is actually sacred and deeply meaningful to me and treating it just like flippantly or trifly. No, no, don't do that. Let the name of God be hallowed. Christian people ought to be very careful in that regard. Jesus tells his disciples that prayer itself is rooted in the hallowing of the name of God. And so not only does this mean that we need to be reverent in the way that we treat sacred things like the name of God, especially in prayer, but it also means that when we come to God in prayer, we treat his name as hallowed. And so we don't just come to him with a laundry list of things we want him to do. But our prayer life will come alive when it includes moments of adoration and worship of God. So when you're all alone and you're praying, Jesus says, pray to God as your father, pray to your God who's your father in heaven, pray to God and hallow his name. Take time in your prayer just to 
hallow his name. To consider his character. When you begin to hallow his name in prayer, his very character and his nature, you'll find your prayer life unlocked. How do you hallow the name of God in prayer? Well, I think the first way is through reverence. Look, we often fall into the trap of becoming far too cute or coy with God. Instead, Jesus says when we pray, we ought to truly think more of him. To hold him in reverence. I think there are sometimes misguided attempts at reverence that focus overly on outer trappings. But the real issue is the heart. Can you foster feelings of reverence for God and for his name in your heart in prayer? What would that look like? Well, sometimes the best way to get at something is through analogy. How do I hallow and reverence my wife, right? Well, I think one of the ways that I hallow or reverence my wife is by spending time with her. Another way is I like to spend money on her. I also hallow or reverence my, reverence my wife by expending my emotional resources trying to care for her. I also reverence my wife and hallow her by thinking about her and what she would want when I go to do things. Well, perhaps those are similar ways that we hallow and reverence the name of God. We spend time with him. Intentionally setting time aside for secret prayer, like Jesus says, coming to public worship, Bible study, all of those things. Those are all ways that we spend time with him. We give our money to him. When you give freely to the work of the Lord, it's the best way to destroy the idol of greed in your life and to actually reverence and hallow the name of God by giving away the money that he's entrusted to you for his work. That's how you hallow him. Do you also hallow and reverence the name of God when you think about God and what he would want in everything that you do? Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is the very attitude that you bring to prayer, to reverence God. I think another way that we hallow the name of God is not only reverence, but awe. When is the last time that you truly stood in awe beholding your God? That's something that we do in prayer. We, in prayer, we quiet all the noise in our life and we leave space for God to be God. We come to him with childlike wonder. We marvel at things that we've perhaps taken for granted. We stand in awe of him. We reverence his name. We truly enjoy all that we have and all that we see as blessings from him. We hallow him. Hallowed be your name. 
I was out cross-country skiing the other day with Matthew, and we were up at um, Hilton Falls. And there's one point where two trails cross, and, you know, there's like a park bench. And so we were pretty exhausted by that point, so we stopped. And, um, and we stopped there, and we saw that the trees were filled with chickadees. Chickadees are cute, aren't they? And so we sort of played a little dirty trick on them. Um, Matthew sat there and he put out his hand like this with nothing in it. <laughs> and these chickadees came down from the tree and they landed on Matthew's fingers and started looking around in his hand and then gave him a look like, really? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is while these chickadees were sitting on his hand, I looked at this little chickadee and it was the most beautiful thing I had beheld in a long time. It's beautiful. The intricate details of all of its feathers, its bright little eyes. And then I began to think about this little creature, and I thought, you know, I'm interacting with this creature for a sum total of about two minutes, but it has an entire life. It has a nest. It has family. It has hopes. It has dreams. It has feelings. It gets cold. It gets scared. And in that moment, I just began to awe at this creature of the creator. And the awe that I had was not for the chickadee, but for the God that this chickadee brings glory to. And I was just felt this great sense of awe. And in that moment of childlike wonder and awe, I felt like the very name and nature and character of God was hallowed. Hallowed be your name. See, the little chickadee reminded me that everything about that little bird is intended to point to and bring glory and honor to the name and the character of God. That this bird exists from and for God. It is cared for and watched over and protected by God. And so when you look at these things, don't take them for granted. Bring a childlike wonder to them and they will Bring your heart to a place where you hallow the nature and the character of God. When you reverence and hallow the name of God, you're joining in something that Jesus prayed for. John chapter 12, Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify his own name. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says that Christians ought to seek that God would in all things be glorified. Hallowed be your name. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the attitude and the shaping of our hearts as we come to the Lord in prayer. Next, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Disciples of Jesus pray that God's kingdom would come. Okay, first, when we pray that God's kingdom would come in its fullness, we are remembering that there's so much more to our life than just this temporary moment. We're remembering that this momentary existence that we all have of, you know, 80 years, 90 years, whatever it may be, is fleeting at best. Not what it's really all about. Thy kingdom come. Because we compare those few decades 
to the eternal kingdom of God. And so Christians pray longing for that day when Jesus Christ will return and bring his kingdom back in fullness. It shapes our desires and our hopes. The second thing that we mean when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Christian men and women believe a couple of things. One of the things that we believe is that when Jesus came in the first advent on that first Christmas, he brought with him the kingdom of God. He inaugurated and began a new age, a new age that will be fully realized when he returns and brings his kingdom in its fullness. And that we who live in that time period between the first advent and the second advent, the first coming and the second, we are living in what James Dunn called the overlapping of ages. A time when we look around and we see the kingdom of God all around us, but not yet in its fullness. We see moments where the kingdom of God breaks out, but we also see times of great horrible atrocity. And so as Christians, we pray, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we're praying, we are praying that the reality of tomorrow would break through into today. That's what we pray when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, oh, Father, let the reality of your coming kingdom break into this moment right now at this precise second. And you know, that is the prayer of the longing, lamenting heart. Perhaps that's a prayer for you this morning. If there are things in your family, if there are things in your life, if there are things that you see in your world that are not the way you know they ought to be, they need to be set aright, then what you're really praying for is that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in that thing on earth as it is in heaven. That the reality of tomorrow would become the reality of today. Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed Come soon in power to set things aright and let today look like that great day. Next thing he says, give us our daily bread. Do you see that? Well, I think at a very superficial level, and it's true, this is a prayer for provision. It's a reminder for us that everything that we have is from God. Think about that in your own life. Where does everything that you have come from? Well, in some respect, it comes because you've been conscientious to some degree and you've worked hard and you've accumulated some money and you've bought the things that you want. Or maybe you'd even look at things more um, at a deeper level and say, well, not even just material things. You know, the good things in my life, like having a good family and having a good, those are because of good decisions that I've made and I've put those things together. Well, even if that's true, where did the desire and the ability to do those things come from? Look, the more you grow in Christ and the more you pray, the more you're going to realize 
everything that you have is grace. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father in heaven. And so you come to him and you say, give us this day our daily bread. This is a much needed reminder in today's world. It prevents us from becoming proud. But it also prevents us from worrying. See, Jesus is going to go on in this chapter and he's going to point people to birds and lilies. You know that part? He's going to say, don't worry about things. He's going to say, look at the birds of the air. They don't do anything of their own and, and yet your heavenly Father cares for them. He's going to say, look at the lilies of the valley. They are dressed more beautifully than Kim Kardashian and yet they don't toil, they don't spin. Your heavenly Father cares for them. It doesn't say Kim Kardashian, by the way. And the point that Jesus is elaborating here is when you pray to God, pray to him for your daily bread. Remember that it all comes from him and so you can't be proud. Remember that if he cares for the birds, how much more does he care for you, his children? He will provide you daily bread. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Jesus says. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm actually going to set that aside because that's going to be our sermon for next week. And he closes with this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you're a Christian man or woman. You're going about your day-to-day life. And yet you see temptation in your own life you sometimes fall into sin you see the impact of other people's sin on your life and its negative consequences and you think man where does that come from well on the one hand as my friend likes to tell me he says everything in your life happens for a reason and sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and make bad decisions right Sometimes bad things happen just because we make bad decisions. But praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is a reminder that the temptation in your life and the evil in your life never comes from God. It's never from God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this way, to remind us that The evil in our life is never from God. God doesn't bring temptation or evil. He brings deliverance from evil. James chapter 1 says this. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So pray like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Prayer reminds us that God doesn't tempt us with sin, but he delivers us. Let's make this one very practical. The next time you find yourself tempted with sin, how would it change if instead of bargaining with yourself and coming to some detente and, you know, 
giving, giving sin quarter in your life and just giving yourself permission, how would it change if instead you prayed this, God deliver me from this? You know what I mean. The next time that you're sitting home alone and you're bored and your computer's open and you know you can delete the history or the cookies, and instead of going there, you pray, God, I know you haven't led me into this temptation. Deliver me from evil. You know, friends, in that moment, you are praying into the very character and the nature of your loving Heavenly Father, and he will deliver you. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.